0: Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. My
1: name is Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are continuing our coverage of the Robert W. Chambers novella, The Repairer of Reputations. We'll be discussing a lot of what we found in the story, which we recapped in our last episode.
0: We want to thank everyone who participated in our Patreon vote to choose our next batch of stories. We're going to report back on the results in a few episodes, but you can also find them listed
1: on the show's webpage at uh, claytemplemedia.com. If you feel bad because you missed out on voting, don't worry. We're going to be doing another vote in just two months. And really, Glenn, I just want to echo your thanks to our patrons for their support. It's great for us to know that people are listening to us and participating in really what is a labor of love for both of us. But I think we have a lot to discuss about the repair of reputation. So Glenn, why don't we get started on the discussion of this story? Yeah, there is a lot to talk about here. For me, the, the real elephant in the room
0: of this story is the world, the speculative world that Chambers has built, what's going on with this re- long preamble? To getting to the actual story. But I'm going to push all of that to be the second half of our discussion. And I want to start by talking about the, the plot of the, the story and, and really the, the, the madness here and the question of what's real and what isn't and the role of uh, the play, The King in Yellow, and the idea of theater. In this story. So, the first question that I have for you, Brandon, to really kick this off is how real is this supernatural stuff that is happening here in the story? All this business with Carcosa and Hester and the King in Yellow?
1: I think we have to look at the character Vance to get a real sense of what is real and what is not in relation to the King in Yellow, the play, what the play does to people. Vance is, of course, the character who is brought out at the end of the story to commit murder, to execute the writ of execution uh, signed by Hildred Rex to kill Hauberk, Constance, and Louis. Vance is distraught in part because he is a person who is insane, just like Mr. Wilde and just like. Hildred, or people who have been committed to an asylum at some point in their life. Vance has had this intense reaction to having read the play, The King in Yellow, and is cured, finally, in the asylum of whatever havoc the reading The King in Yellow had on his mind. But then he's pulled back into the world of Carcosa when he visits Mr. Wilde to have his reputation repaired. Vance is also a criminal. He's a fraud, he's a counterfeit, uh, and he's a thief. So I think we're meant as a reader to get a sense that this play is genuinely disruptive to the mental well-being of those who read it. Something about the reality effect of the play causes people who maybe are already on the verge of going mad to tip over into full madness. And so I think... That if you look at Vance as a character who's kind of outside of the mind of Hildred and compare that to Hildred's own mind, who Hildred had read this while he was either in the asylum, in the private asylum of Dr. Archer, or recently released and read this while he was healing from his injuries, that this play does have some supernatural effect on those who read it. As I alluded to in our recap, the idea of there being a king or an imperial dynasty or an imperial dynastic history of American rulers seems like an idea that would not take root in America, especially the America we find in this story. And so it's hard for me to believe that this play does anything other than cause madness in those who might already be nearly mad. So I don't, think the king in yellow is a real figure or Carcosa is a real planet and that emperors in the past have served the king in yellow. But it's more like a stand-in for uh, maybe something, some kind of demonic influence in history or an evil influence in history. It certainly has an evil influence on Hildred.
0: I want to follow up with this stuff about the play a little bit later. I want to start maybe a little more small scale. So it seems to me, Brandon, that you don't believe one bit that the Castains somehow really are, uh, even if it's unbeknownst to themselves, you don't believe that they are in any way the rightful monarchs of America or the the agents of the King in Yellow. Is that fair to, to say?
1: Yes, to the first part. I do not believe that there is at all secret history of rulers in America that the Castains are going to be the lead of, and they're going to return to their rightful crown. Do I believe that Hildred is serving the King in Yellow? Yes. And I think he's doing that whether or not the King in Yellow is a real figure at all. Hildred believes enough that the King in Yellow is real to serve him. But you are reading Hildred Castain as one hundred percent delusional—that
0: the things that he's acting on are not are not objectively true about the the universe. So this then raises the question for me about how much of even what's happening in this story is true or how much of it is actually just made up by the narrator himself. And and I guess really what I'm getting at here is whether even Mr. Wilde exists, or if Mr. Wilde is a figure who is just in Hildred's head. And and I have the same question about Vance as well, who when we, we meet him, he shows up in the middle of a scene but we're told that he's been there the whole time, but yet Hildred didn't see him, even though he was searching through the whole apartment for the cat while he's holding a hatchet in his hand. Is any of that real, or is all of that in the narrator's head?
1: I think Mr. Wilde is real. I think there's objective evidence for Mr. Wilde's being real in the world of this story. Uh, Hawberk knows about Mr. Wilde and thinks he's a lunatic. Mr. Wilde does hang the sign above the shop. I think all of those are relatively objective realities. And I'm using like a philosophy of history concept here, which is like, if we were in this world, could we verify certain realities that are taking place? Which is a question asked about the past. We call something happening in the past is true because there's a, a certain attitude we have towards that fact. That if we were to encounter it, we could verify it. And that's kind of how I'm looking at some of the events in this story. I think there are events that, were we to be walking around in this world, we could verify. Mr. Wilde is one of them. Vance, being a figure who mysteriously shows up, doesn't call into question in my mind whether or not he's real because Hildred misses things. He just misses things about the world. His focus is myopic and it wouldn't surprise me that if he's focusing on finding the cat he wouldn't notice another figure he doesn't talk about his visit to Dr Archer until after the fact there are gaps and that could lead to that could lead us to just speculate about the nature of his head injury where he just has these gaps in his memory he might have seen vance and just forgotten about him and that's fine for me vance could have been hiding under the bed tied up there's a number of things that Mr. Wilde's interaction with Vance is so violent and awful, and Vance is so traumatized when he's let out of whatever room he's being kept in that it's plausible to me that Vance is real. All right. So if we, if we take Mr. Wilde
0: as being a real person who actually lives on the third floor of this this building that Hauberk and Constance live in as well, what, I have more questions about like what what is actually going on with him. Really, setting aside Hildred's delusional world, is Mr. Wilde working as a repairer of reputations? Does he really have people in his employ who go out and uh, work as, I don't know, some kind of PR agency for people in this speculative world? You know, if he doesn't, or even if he does, I guess another, another question that I would have is, does he actually believe the same delusion that Hildred believes. Does Mr. Wilde actually believe that Hildred Castain is going to be the monarch of America? Or is this still all just something that's going on in Hildred's mind that these conversations that, that he reports to us as having had with Mr. Wilde would look very different if Mr. Wilde was giving us his account of those conversations? I guess really it's a matter of, of are they in this delusion together?
1: I'm not convinced that they are. We don't really see Mr. Wilde talking much about the King in Yellow, though Mr. Wilde may have had a hand in writing the manuscript, The Imperial Dynasty of America, which does include references to Carcosa and the Hyades and Lake of Hali and all of these other strange places that are found in the King of Yellow. I think if we were to look at the story from the perspective of Mr. Wilde, We'd have a story about a man who lives in an apartment alone with his cat and has started writing names and amounts of money in a ledger and keeping track of people's actions or activities. And it's very strange. Mr. Wilde is a genie type of figure. The only questions I have about like the supernatural reality in this story are about the nature of Mr. Wilde himself, whether or not he's actually mad or he is some sort of magical being. That is a genuine agent of the King in Yellow, whether or not he's real, but is an agent of some force that is granting the dark wishes of Hildred. That to me is where the the real mystery element lies: is what nature is, Mister Wilde. If he does have this book of names and amounts, and has all of these people at his employ, and is kind of running this grand underground network of people, there's something real going on there. And it's backed up potentially by the fact that Hallberg did find these pieces of armor. Though it could also be that this was just a costume shop, and everybody is kind of humoring Hildred and not taking him seriously. So I don't know about Mr. Wilde. I still have questions about whether or not he's mad or some genie type figure. Well, yeah, let's dig in on Mr. Wilde, because I think what you're pointing to here is that he's
0: described to us in the story as being a grotesquely shaped person, a grotesquely shaped human being. He's uh, bizarrely short, strangely muscled, strangely proportioned. He also doesn't have ears. He's wearing fake ears, and he's scarred as well. So this could be a grotesque human being, but he also might not be a human being. It's not something that's explicitly raised in the text, but it is absolutely possible, right? That he is in fact, uh, an inhabitant of Carcosa, that he's an alien from this planet, where the city of Carcosa is, this planet that uh, orbits the binary sun system and has black stars, who has come to Earth with this manuscript and with uh, this this crown and these other uh, accoutrements uh, of the king in yellow, including the, the yellow sign. That's certainly something that's hinted at here. Uh, is that a hill that you would die on? Or do you think that this is ambiguous?
1: I think it's ambiguous. And I think it's meant to be ambiguous. The Real section of the text that calls all this into question is, as it's reported to us, Hallberg's belief that he has found the missing pieces of armor that are worth $2,000 that Mr. Wilde has a special bead on that nobody else seems to know where they are. That is the sole piece of textual evidence that leads me to believe that there is actually something special about Mr. Wilde. Mr. Wilde also seems to know something about the secret past of Halberd. Whether he is the Marquis of Avonshire or whether that's a real thing is another question, but it seems as though this hint at a dark secret is a legitimate reality that they are hiding from.
0: This question of, of of what does Mr. Wilde know and how does he know it, I think is really, really fascinating. Absolutely. He is the person who has this manuscript about the imperial dynasty of America. And and I think that all of the things that Hildred Castain believes are true about the world and his place in it are things he has learned from Mr. Wilde. He, I think he is sharing in Mr. Wilde's delusion, or possibly some sort of information that Mr. Wilde has special access to by virtue of being a space alien or or being somehow in touch with some real supernatural figure called the the King in Yellow, which can be true even if the Imperial Dynasty of America stuff is all made up, that that's something that Mr. Wilde is using in order to manipulate uh, Hildred Castaigne here. But I think we should we should talk now about the play, The King in Yellow, and how real is the information that we get about the play, right? Is the information that we get about what's, what goes on in the play, is that actually from the play, this objective thing that Louis knows about, that Hauberk knows about, that Constance knows about? Or is even the information that we learn about the play in this text, is that part of Heldred's delusion? Is that something that he's made up? Or is all of that information even maybe made up by Mr. Wilde?
1: There's some evidence in the story that the play does have a legitimately dangerous reputation in the world. That even the kind of bravest readers and proponents of uncensored literature and all this sort of stuff don't want anything to do with it. That there is something too much about this play that people do not want to deal with. Louis says he doesn't even want to read it because he's not even curious about the type of madness that besets people who experience or read the play. I think Mr. Wilde, though, does a lot to stoke Hildred's fire when it comes to the belief about the veracity of the elements in the play. I don't know if anything in the play is true or false. It is most likely false, but perhaps there are these agents of the King in Yellow. And Mr. Wilde is one who is are able to manipulate people around them and have them act as uh, servants of their darkest desires. And certainly, that is what is happening with Hildred. You get the sense that Mr. Wilde is really pulling the strings on Hildred. We don't know why why Hildred began to visit Mr. Wilde in the first place, but I do think once they met, they made each other much worse. Once having met, and that a lot of this stuff from the imperial dynasty of America is really madness that is a combination of wish fulfillment and power fantasy and a justification of murdering people who you believe are in your way to becoming the king of America and the darker elements of the play, The King in Yellow. So I think what we learn about the play here is all probably real and true to the play and the world of the play. And I think it does affect people with certain types of minds. Yeah, that's what I
0: think, too. I think these mentions of things like Nautalba and Aldonis and Haster and the Lake of Hali. I don't think that these are words uh, that are made up by Hildred that are only part of his delusion or Mr. Wilde's delusion for that matter. I think these are things that are from the play and that a big part of what's happening here is that uh, Hildred has seen this disturbing work of art, this disturbing play, this disturbing story, and is trying to live it out It is not actually all that different from uh, kids playing Star Wars, from kids uh, fighting each other with uh, yellow wiffle ball bats and pretending that they're lightsabers. It is different in degree, but not different in kind. And that a part of what's happening there is that it is the source material itself that is disturbing, right? That we get these objective reports that that other people have witnessed this play, watched it performed, have read the text, and have uh, gone insane and been driven to like criminal actions as a result of it, it seems as well. But you hinted at this, Brandon, this is still a question that I'm really left with, which is that, is the play The King in Yellow, just some play that somebody wrote that is just so darn good, somehow so uh, emotive and so um, uh, captivating that it has this effect on some people. But it's totally made up, right? If we've met the playwright and said, is this a fictional world of your own devising? He would say yes. Or does the playwright have some access, to special access to something that is supernatural or preternatural, but that is real, right? Is it is it still maybe the case that Carcosa is real and The King in Yellow is real, and that this playwright on earth has some kind of special access to that, and that in writing the play, there is some kind of supernatural power
1: at work? I think that question is left purposefully ambiguous in this story. We have this whole theme of legal suicide taking place in the background of the text here. But there's a rumor going around that the the playwright of The King in Yellow shot himself after completing it. But there's also this question in Hildred's mind of whether or not the playwright did commit suicide. And Louis says that it's probably true that he didn't. Bullets couldn't kill a fiend like that, which is strange because they're talking about somebody taking their own life with their own hand. And Louis here is referring to the bullets killing the playwright, not the playwright killing himself, as though what this work has done is demonstrate the monstrosity and the, the evil or the holy other presence of this playwright that the normal modes of dying, even at your own hand, don't apply to him. So, that's something that jumped out at me in relation to like the playwright and the, the text, The King in Yellow, is that there is ambiguity about whether or not he's lived or died. But there's this also odd connection of the only real suicide in this story, if he did kill himself, that raises the question of whether or not suicide is justifiable. It kind of goes into that other question of whether or not you should create a society that facilitates people killing them themselves, and whether or not that's good for society at large. And I think the answer to that question is, Chambers is saying, somebody who does something this terrible, if the king in yellow is genuinely a dangerous text, and then kills themselves, is a person who's really escaping the justice and judgment of the legal system, of society uh, taking responsibility for itself. And I think we've seen something like this happen in our in our own world. This is kind of a rash of things like this happening in the 2000s, where people would commit these horrible acts, living out their darkest fantasies. And when they finished killing themselves, I'm thinking of the, the man who held the Amish school hostage. Uh, and th- 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 there's a few other examples, but I don't want to go too dark in this podcast, but Suicide is not really a solution to societal ills. And I think that that is part of what Chambers is interrogating in this text. Right. This was a, a scary fantasy
0: when Chambers wrote it, but we actually live in a world today where people are driven to acts of uh, delusional violence because of something they saw on TV or things they heard or read on, on Twitter, even, for example, uh, and do end up killing themselves frequently at the end of that sort of murderous rampage. There is another death in this story. I mean, the story ends with a death, in fact, right, which is the death of the narrator himself we are just told that he died yesterday. I wondered if he also took his own life here in the asylum, or if it's just been 50 years, and he's been living in there and has died of natural causes. Did you have a, a read on that?
1: Yeah, I wonder if we can connect this kind of neutral term, death at the end of this story, to also the death of Boris Yvain, who died in Paris when he was only 23 years old. I wonder if we're not Meant to really read any of these deaths as neutral. Here we have this great sculptor who built this maybe beautiful sculpture of the fates that was purchased by the US government in order to put in front of the first death clinic, government sponsored suicide clinic. And this person goes to Paris and maybe kills themselves. We don't know how they died, but I wonder if we're supposed to think that this is another example of a person fulfilling a great project, in a sense, and it being abused by the audience and not being able to live with that. And once again, they put something out in the world and couldn't handle what it did to the world and killed themselves. And I wonder now if we can do the same thing with Hildred at the end of the story, if This murder of Dr. Archer was really him taking vengeance on somebody who called him insane. And this is all he's really been trying to do is prove he's not insane. And the action in which he does only proves his insanity. And he can't live with that. Uh, So he kills himself as well. And it's all this is outside of these uh, government sponsored suicide places. So I don't really know. I I read it neutrally at first, but now I really wonder how all of this ties into the the function of the lethal chamber in the story. And I wonder
0: if the project that the narrator has concluded before taking his own life or before dying here is avenging himself on Dr. Archer, or if it's writing this story down, right, this creative artistic project, and that now that's done, uh, I can, I can kill myself. And maybe I even have to kill myself. For some reason, there is a real through line here, that art, the, the process of, of creation, creativity itself drives people to, to
1: madness and to to suicide. This is a big part of kind of the late romantics, Understanding of art, even going up to like William Blake, who has a lot of poems uh, about neoclassicism, and this is all influenced by, I think, the Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche. But the more your art veers towards the Dionysian, the 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 mad creative energy, the less you can recover from that, and that these are works that. Are so far from the artist's ability to control themselves that they get too far into the Dionysian ritual, the, the bacchanals, the bloodletting, the sacrifices to make their art, that they lose themselves entirely. This is uh, something you find in a lot of Yeats' poetry. It's a big part, as I said, of kind of the late Romantic era as well. And a lot of it really comes from uh, Birth of Tragedy by, by Nietzsche. And Chambers gives a lot of
0: attention to the role that creative types and artists. Play in the construction of the the world here of this fictional 1920s. There's so much emphasis on architecture, on city planning, on the the, the writing of, of of even this play. There's even this uh, the construction of this manuscript, the Imperial Dynasty of America. All of these acts of of artistic creation are happening in this story, and it seems very much that the people in this speculative world are engaged in an act of reshaping, of recreating the world that they live in. Uh, And so I think on that note, I want to get into talking about the world building in this story, which for me is the the biggest aspect of this story. But I just want to start kind of big picture. And remind listeners that this story opens with just two straight pages of world building before we get to any kind of action happening, before we're introduced to an actual character, before we even know that this is a first person narrative account. We have almost uh, six or 700 words of story before we get to any of that. Almost certainly, this story would not be published today. An editor would not buy this story if you sent it to her now. But I want to start this world-building conversation, Brandon, just by asking you if all of this big world-building opening, this long explanation about this speculative near-future America r- works for you. Does this Is this something that actually draws you into the story, or
1: was it off-putting to you? I enjoyed it more as a cultural artifact than as a great way to open a story. It's really difficult to read. You're thrown into this fictional 1920s.
0: Do you want to read more stories that open this way without a character, without a plot, and just several pages of description about what the fantasy world is like? No. Okay. I love this opening. I know that I don't want every story I read to, to actually open this way, uh, but this really scratches the itch that I have of really enjoying to read role-playing guides, not because I actually want to play the game, but because I just want to learn what that world is like. I, I also don't think this is a particularly great way to, to open your story. So now let's talk about this speculative world itself, which for me is, is actually the most exciting feature of this story. I mean, it gets gets my heart thumping out of my, my chest. And what I want to do here is just start by going going. going through these first two pages, more or less line by line, and pointing it in the context of the real 1890s when Chambers wrote this story. Because I think that part of why this doesn't maybe work all that well for us today is because it doesn't mean anything to us. But Chambers is really ticking all of the boxes. Every line of this story is something that uh, his readers would have been really, really passionate about, his contemporary readers, I should say. So I won't quite do every line, but I'll point out a few of them here from these these first two pages. So uh, the first thing that we get here that I think is really interesting is, Chambers writes, everybody knows how the tariff and labor questions were settled. Uh, these were, in fact, the most important political issues of the 1890s in America, the tariff and labor questions. And so the first thing that Chambers is doing here to distinguish his speculative world is predicting a future in which no one cares about those issues anymore. And if we were going to write a story or open a story this way today, right, we would do something similar by writing, well, everybody knows how the healthcare question was settled. I'm not going to tell you how it was settled, because that doesn't matter. What matters is that we don't care about that anymore, even though it's all anybody seems to care about now. But these were issues, the tariff and labor questions were concerns, because people were worried about how uh, a free market would affect uh, American industry. And and also because of high immigration in the second half of the 19th century, and how those things uh, affected the labor market in America. Uh, And no, no one wants to hear me talk about historical uh, numbers about tariffs and, and employment rates and stuff here. So I'll just say that the heart of the matter was whether or not high tariffs protected American industry from foreign competition, and whether immigration should be restricted in order to stabilize the, the labor market. And maybe, uh, in short, the way to put that is just to say that it's about uh, protecting America from foreigners, which, as we pointed out throughout the recap, is all over this story, this, uh, this real uh, political nativism, this idea that uh, America needs to be protected from, from other people, from non-Americans in almost every way the the very next line of the story is about the war with Germany. And then we get like half a page about what's happening with the war. And it's not clear when this was, but it does seem to be recent, seems to be just before 1920. This, of course, is strangely prescient, because of course, in the real world that we live in, the US did fight a war against Germany just before 1920. But the way that Chambers writes about this is not at all the way that the actual First World War took place. I mean, Chambers and really no one living in the 1890s, could possibly have imagined the true horror of the First World War that did so much to reshape our world. But Chambers does give us something of the, the narrative of this war, and it goes goes like this. So the war starts with Germany seizing the Samoan Islands, which uh, in the real eighteen nineties were an imperial territory of the United States. Uh, and this is what starts the war. Then Germany occupies Norfolk, Virginia, which is still our chief naval base on the Atlantic coast, uh, and even lands an army in New Jersey. And something I found really funny, really enjoyable about this business with Germany sending an army to New Jersey, not just because we happen to live very close to New Jersey. I work in New Jersey, but the the name of the German general is General von Gartenlaube which, just means it means general like garden tree, and in fact, this is even a, a word that sometimes can be used to mean gazebo in German. So it's like general gazebo. Um, you certainly wouldn't have a von in front of that. This is that's not actually how German works at all. The von here serving though to let us know that he's some kind of Prussian or aristocrat or something. So uh, this is another joke of a foreign name, which is something we've we've seen Chambers do throughout, and and all of these moves, uh, taking Samoa, occupying Norfolk, invading New Jersey, they all catch the U.S. by surprise. But after regrouping, the U.S. easily dispatches these German forces. And, you know, this seems kind of meaningless to us reading this story today, but this was a huge deal in the 1890s. The Samoan Islands were Uh, were in fact an object of extremely intense imperial competition among Britain, Germany, and the United States. And the notion that one of those powers might seize the territory of the others was not absurd. And, And the idea that that might precipitate something of a world war, also not absurd. Uh, That's not how this situation got resolved in reality. Uh, There was, in fact, a peaceful partition of the islands in 1899. And of course, the US still retains control of its part of Samoa from that treaty. Uh, Germany and the UK don't have their possessions anymore. Those are now the independent country of Samoa. Uh, But the American American Samoa is still an American imperial possession
1: today. I think this focus on American imperialism is really an important way that Chambers is underlining the theme of America as an actually imperialist nation competing with other global powers to expand their empire. And maybe what Chambers is trying to draw people's attention to, as he's talking about this imperial war that starts with uh, Germany invading Samoa instead of, say, Poland or something like that, And he says this right in the same way that this war left no scar on the republic is immediately creating some cognitive dissonance here. We're calling this a republic, but we're competing with these other nations in an imperial for imperial power, for uh, other nations' property and land and resources. And he even goes to talk about the resources of Hawaii and Cuba that we use to help us win the war as great investments. And so I really don't know. And, and this is a big question I have for the story is what Chambers' view on all of this is? Is he poking fun at the way Americans think about themselves compared to the reality of their? situation in the world as a nation, as their representatives act out on the global stage. So that is, I think, the really important piece of what Chambers is doing with this war uh, with Germany.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about this business with Cuba and Hawaii here in just a minute. Uh, I I find, But I want, to, I want to address this sort of tension that you're pointing to here between the values of democracy and the values of imperialism. This is a tension that we as Americans in the early 21st century feel profoundly. Uh, when I teach my modern world history class, this theme of empires is how I organize the material and overwhelmingly my students struggle with the idea that the United States has imperial possessions now, today, and even that it has had more of them in the past. Because we firmly believe that democracies aren't empires, that empires are something that are run by emperors. But that's not true, uh, and has rarely been true. In fact, most of the historical empires of our real world have actually been democracies in some sense or another, including classical Athens, where the democracy is born, including Rome. The Roman Empire is not an empire because it's ruled by an emperor. The Roman Empire gets emperors about 300 years after it's founded. 300 years, most of its existence, in fact, uh, it's run by uh, something that we would think of as being democratic institutions or at least republican institutions. The British Empire is uh, the same. And the U.S. Empire of the 19th century, when everyone was trying to be an empire is the is in the same place so I, I'm less convinced maybe than you are that Chambers is pointing to some kind of anxiety about that I think that kind of anxiety would have been a real minority position in this world but we can't help but feel that when we encounter this. And let's even take a look at actually Cuba and Hawaii here, because I think that's going to help us uh, see how this actually functioned for Americans in the 1890s or, or the late 19th century in general. Uh, and, and Chambers calls this the Cuban and Hawaiian investments. And in the 1890s, this was an important matter in American politics, whether the US should annex Hawaii, which of course now is a state in the US, but was an independent country at this time and whether or not we should annex Cuba. Uh, so in the 1890s, Hawaii is still an independent state, and uh, but there is a land-owning Anglo elite on the island. And there's a question of whether or not Those immigrants to Hawaii, or the indigenous populations, should actually wield power. This was a question that was being hotly debated, uh, really debated with a lot of violence, and even with a civil war in Hawaii. And ultimately, it's that civil war is what precipitates U.S. military intervention and leads to the annexation of Hawaii. It's a peacekeeping mission, and it turns out, well, the best way to keep peace is for us just to continue to occupy Hawaii and make you part of our empire this doesn't actually happen until 1898. So that's not something that happens till after Chambers has written that this story, but he's, he's basically predicting that that's going to happen here. And the story with Cuba is much the same. Uh, in the 1890s, Cuba was still a possession of the Spanish Empire, but American politicians have been calling for the US to capture Cuba to go conquer Cuba uh, for, for decades for, for almost really 70 years at this point. And the idea of conquering Cuba is actually even an issue that's wrapped up in the start of the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s. We don't tend to talk about it as being a big deal when you're learning about the Civil War in high school, but it was a huge part of the political moves and the election process that leads to the Civil War. Uh, ultimately, um, U.S does annex Cuba. Cuba's part of the United States of America for uh, a little while around uh around the turn of the 20th century um uh this happens during the Spanish-American War of 1898 this is also the same war that the US annexes Puerto Rico which of course is still a part of the United States the US has kept Puerto Rico and the US has kept part of Cuba uh Guantanamo Bay right but the rest of Cuba is an independent country today and you know I think we can easily overlook the significance of all of this when we read this story because we're doing that well over a century after it was written. But at the time, you know, Chambers here was jumping into the deep end of the political pool with this stuff. I mean, it was contentious, right? All of this would have elicited strong emotional responses from contemporary readers. I think we can even really imagine some readers who opened up this book and read the first couple pages of this story and said, well, this is a world I wouldn't want to live in. I have voted against all of these things and thrown it against the wall and kind of rage quit this book, or they've kept reading, but like a hate reading, right? And this is, you know, the same way that people all over the internet complain when their TV show gets too political on them or something like that, right? Something I encounter all the time as a Star Trek fan. And that's what Chambers is doing here, even though we don't notice that because these aren't the political issues for us. And in particular, I think, you know, Chambers here is showing a government just 25 years down the road that has fully embraced aggressive imperialism as a tool of domestic peace and prosperity. And I've just nuanced something you said, Brandon, about wanting to show that many Americans were for this, but not all of them were, right? This was a contentious political issue. There were opponents to imperialism. There were, there were opponents to all this kind of aggressive expansion who thought of it as being something that was un-American. Though when they pointed to this being a, un-American, it was less about democratic institutions and more about historical contingencies of America as being a, a, a state that was formed out of rebellion, against an empire. And they will point to things like Washington's famous farewell address in which he says, don't get involved in entangling alliances. In fact, be isolationist. Uh, They'd point to things like Thomas Jefferson's anxiety about the Louisiana Purchase. And, you know, they would point to these things to argue that the the U.S. government, or or really, we should say the federal government, has no business waging offensive wars, no business administering territory, and, and also no business interfering in the international free market, that those aren't things that government is supposed to be doing.
1: Right, this is a legitimate question. I mean, this is this is Thoreau's big protest where he writes civil disobedience is about the Mexican-American war, which was about how we get Texas and the the heroics of the Alamo and all of these things that are new national myths that are being created about uh, being really an imperialist nation and a lot of this literature, this story is caught up in the same question that was really a, a big part of late 19th century American literature after the Civil War, as we continue to wage war uh, to to gain land, which is the question of, is this the promise of America? What is America supposed to be? And I do think that, that as we go through these, I hope we'll be able to find that Chambers is purposefully bringing these questions up and putting them in contrast with the character of Hildred Castain to really look at what types of people are asking about the promise of America or what people are willing to do to maintain their own vision of what America ought to be. It does feel like a critique because all of this is put in conversation with uh, Castain's violent ambition. But I don't know, and I hope we'll continue to ask that question as we go through Chambers' world building here. Right, because this is still all just the kind of foreign side
0: of this. There, There's uh, the whole other domestic side to what Chambers is doing here, right? It's it's more than just that there are these successful military campaigns in the Samoas and Hawaii and Cuba, these distant, non-Anglo places. Uh, Chambers, here in this story, he envisions an imperial America that is also heavily militarized at home. Uh, and this is what provides, I think, the, you know, the real backdrop uh, to the story every coastal city has been fortified and the standing military has been greatly expanded and the the numbers that Chambers gives us, he gives us three hundred thousand people, and that's that's just in the army. Uh, the math of these numbers look like uh, about seven or eight percent of the population of the United States is in the the standing military, based on those those numbers. And this is in stark contrast to the less than half of one percent of the population that serves in our standing military today. And and that's while we are busy fighting a forever war in Afghanistan. This is is literally 14 times the number of people in the military in this fictional world, as in our real world. And all this imperialism, uh, all this militarization, and then this, this economic role of the federal government uh, points to a massive increase in centralized government power in the United States. And and Chamber says this explicitly. He says the centralization of power in the executive branch, that is to say in the office of the president, contributed to national calm and prosperity. And this doesn't seem weird to us today because the Cold War happened we live in a world in which that's a true statement but this aspect of the story is actually probably the most weird fiction element of the story this idea here this element is way weirder than the idea that there might be some place in the galaxy where the stars are black or some planet circling a binary sun that's less weird than the idea that the central government might have this much power
1: i mean all of this is exacerbated in the post 2000s uh, especially after 911 with the Patriot Act and the expansion, the rapid expansion of the powers of the federal government towards its own citizens, all in the name of peace and prosperity of the citizens of the United States. And we're getting even more dark, so to speak, uh, with regard to the centralization of government, as you know, money has become a form of speech in government power, in elections. How the government is able to use data. I'm thinking specifically of like the CIA's partnerships with Google or Facebook or something like that, where every citizen is now really able to be scrutinized under the authority of the executive branch of the government that was given these powers of the Patriot Act. That anything can be done in the name of peace. In the United States for the U.S. citizens, and uh, I think Chambers was really onto something here. As the kind of myth of the executive branch gets stronger and stronger and stronger, it might not be so crazy to think that there might be a king in America's future. Well,
0: that's exactly right. This is the fruition of the the values of Alexander Hamilton back in the the, the writing of the Constitution in the early days of the United States of America who, of course, was actually a monarchist, right, who didn't want Democratic or Republican institutions. And I'm glad you brought up 9-11 as really reshaping the American political discourse. I kind of pinned it on the Cold War, but even during the Cold War and in the 90s, this glorious decade between the Cold War and the War on Terror, there was still a political discourse in the United States about whether or not the federal government should have as much power as it does, certainly whether or not it should have more power. And there was really a whole political party in the United States whose chief rhetoric was that it, it shouldn't, that even if we think that maybe government should do those types of things, it should be happening at a state level or a local level, and definitely not at that the highest level of the, the federal government this is not true in our political discourse anymore. These are not at all the issues that we talk about. Uh, But these would have been very much up for debate in the 1890s when Chambers was writing that. So this statement that the centralization of power in the hands of the federal government contributes to national calm and prosperity, was a, that's a contentious statement. That's throwing down a political gauntlet. Half of Chambers' audience would have said, no, that's a recipe for disaster. The way to national calm and prosperity is to have more power in the hands of state governments or local governments or to not have government at all. So this really is a, a weird and, and speculative element of the world that Chambers is building here. And he goes further than this. It's not just about you know defense and military and the economy. He has his federal government also become an agent of cultural patronage. There's a state-run theater and a state-run opera. There's a National Academy of Design. There's a Secretary of Fine Arts. There is no Secretary of Fine Arts in the world we live in today. Uh, And of course, there's a new national police force, That is to say, American Mounties. You say you don't want them. I think that might be kind of quaint and nice. And in fact, I think it seems rather silly. And, And it is silly to think about this today. But we have to remember that at the time that Chambers is writing this story, there's not even an FBI yet. The idea that the federal government would actually have its own law enforcement agency was absurd and would have been politically contentious in ways that it's just absolutely not now. I do
1: love this bit about the federal government patronizing the arts, but it seems like it's a terrible job, Chamber says that nobody envied the Secretary of Fine Arts either his cabinet position or his portfolio, and i can 't even imagine the politically charged position of being a, a granter of grants or however you imagine this position in charge of what the government patronizes uh, in order to, to say it values its culture in a certain way i can 't imagine how that would go in America, where we are constantly under the barrage of manufactured cultural crises that are brought to us by the news on a regular basis. I cannot even imagine how this position would function in our current government. It horrifies me, but it's a job I really want. So uh, if anybody wants to create that position in the federal government, I'm happily a candidate. I'll take it on. That'll be fine by me. It's a it's a job I think I'd be pretty good at.
0: Yeah, I think you'd make a great secretary of the fine arts, Brandon. I mean, at the very least, I, I expect that, uh, that I, would be, I would be hired as a weird fiction writer laureate of the United States of
1: America. Right, yes, I would happily do that. But what's interesting is that other countries have figured out how to patronize artists – In their midst, in Belgium, for instance, you can just apply for a grant to be an artist and the government will pay you a certain amount and you just show them that you're working on your projects. And the government doesn't tell you what you can or cannot make, but it's a way to show that they still believe the work of artists is valuable in their culture and that they're willing to support being an artist by offering grants, living grants and stipends. It's not a lot of money to people who do this. And this is not like a political problem there. People are not saying, you got to get people off of the artist's welfare and things like that. They've created a culture that celebrates and enjoys the fact that there are members of their community that are supported in order to create art for their country programs
0: like that positions like this secretary of fine arts that, that chambers invents here for this world are part of the the nation building project uh that's the cultural element of it it's this understanding that the thing that makes us a unified people is a common culture and that if you want to have a common culture a very good way to do that is to direct that through the the, the power of the central government here in this in this fictional world it's it's a matter of national pride and it is in the real world in states that in countries that that have those types of projects and, and that's going to lead into this final element of world building that we need to talk about here that's in these these first two pages of the story. Really, it's everywhere. And that's nationalism. And, 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 and I think that nationalism is the most important part of this world building. And it provides the intellectual and I think even the, the emotional background for understanding what this story is all about. And I've just been talking about nationalism in my Fall of the Roman Empire course. I had planned to spend about 30 minutes on it in class, but uh, because it turns out that most of my students had never even heard the word nationalism before, like they never heard it in high school or just existing in the world, Uh, we wound up spending two weeks on it. And so I want to start here today with just a primer on what nationalism is before we talk about its place here in the story, as I just, I don't want to presume too much knowledge and having this knowledge is, is going to be required in order for us to have the conversation about what Chambers is doing with the repairer of reputations. So let's just start by defining the word nation to begin with. We encounter this word all the time in phrases like national defense or around the nation or even just national football league. And what we mean when we use it this way is the state we live in. Right? When an American uses the word national, she means something that has to do with the United States, while a Filipino would mean something that has to do with the Philippines. This Usage of nation, right? The idea that it's just another synonym for state or for country. We've done it here already, just in this conversation we've been having. That usage of the word is new. Uh, This would have befuddled people like Ben Franklin or Henry V. It's a new, it's an extremely high modern usage of this word. And this usage grows out of a movement to reshape our ideas about various types of group identities. And this is something that was going on in the 18th and the the 19th centuries. It's a project really that grows out of the Enlightenment and out of Romanticism. So uh, I don't know, let's start by talking about what the word means and what the word refers to. At its core, the word nation is more or less a synonym for ethnic group, though we tend to not use it. Quite that way anymore. Uh, the word itself derives from the Latin word natio, uh, which has this meaning. And we get other words from natio uh, as well. Uh, native, natal, and nativity all come from this Latin word. And so you can see that it has something to do with being born. And, and maybe it has to do with the place you were born or the, the group into which you were born. So that's the word nation. But how do we get to, to nationalism? What is nationalism? And this will got us back to the the story. So nationalism uh, as a, a mental framework, a way of perceiving the world has three components. First, there's the belief that everyone on the planet, every person belongs to a nation, which is to say that everyone has an ethnicity. You can't opt out of that. You can't say, no, thanks. I don't want one. Everyone has to have one. Second, there's a belief that a person's national or, or ethnic identity is that person's most important identity. Okay. It's cool that you're a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan, but that's not your primary identity. Your primary identity is that you are an American. Okay. Finally, there's the belief that a nation should have the power of self-determination. That is to say, some kind of, of political power, and that can be that can mean being an independent state, completely, fully independent state. It can also mean being on a, an autonomous community within some kind of larger state. So, uh, Scotland, for example, is a, a nation that has autonomy within the United Kingdom, but is not an independent state. In we live in this world, right? We all believe this to some degree or another. Uh, but as I've said, this is a new idea. This is a belief system. Uh, and it's a belief system that is invented in Europe in the late 18th century uh, and that really gains traction in the 19th. So, this is to say, right, just to be clear, that this is a belief that is newer than the United States of America. The country that we're recording this podcast in came into existence before the belief in
1: nationalism did. We see. The effects of this in the second half of the 20th century, first with uh, the presidential race between John F. Kennedy and uh, Nixon, there was concern in the rhetoric around Kennedy's ability to be the president of America and serve America because he was Irish Catholic. A lot of this is caught up in the Catholicism does he serve the Pope? Does he serve the American people as a president should? But it's also the Irish-Catholic question. There was, there was a lot of discourse around this. It's a similar kind of concept. And, and something similar also happened when Mitt Romney ran for president around his being able to pursue policies that were in the best interest of all American people or the policies that were the interest of the Mormon church to which he belonged. This type of question is something that would not be out of place in discourse about nationalism. Underlying
0: both of those specific anxieties there is a worry that Mitt Romney or John F. Kennedy don't believe in nationalism, that they, they might not believe that being an American is their most important identity, that their religious identity is more important than that. And that, that makes people uncomfortable because we believe that a, a national identity, an ethnic identity, should be a person's paramount identity. And we take it, we take it for granted even when we're engaged in that type of discourse, as we were less than a decade ago, as you point out, we don't even acknowledge that that's actually the unease, the anxiety, the tension that's going on there. But this belief in the idea that ethnic identity or national identity is the most important identity is not just new, it's radical, right? At the moment that this is being brought into existence, that people are conceiving of this idea, the people who held this belief had to convince other people of it. They had to convert people to this way of thinking, to this belief system. They had to convince people that their ethnic identity was more important than their civic identity, both at, at say, the city level and, uh, and also the regional level. And there's a, a real good example example of this in Italy, which wasn't a state, wasn't a country until the 1860s. Uh, people on the Italian peninsula and in the islands that became part of the new state of Italy in the 1860s didn't all speak the same dialect of Italian. And these regional differences uh, they weren't ju- they weren't just like a matter of silly accents. Uh, they could be as mutually unintelligible as as French and Spanish are. So part of the Italian nationalist movement was to convince people that if they lived in the new state of Italy, then they should all speak the same dialect rather than the dialect of the region or their hometown. And lots of people resisted this idea. And this isn't even a project that came into completion until after the Second World War. Uh, Really, it was TV that finished this business. But part of the creation of the new state, the new country of Italy, was to convince people that that's where their cultural identity should lie, not in their identity as as being from Florence or Milan or Sicily. And as we've just said, another type of identity that nationalists have to talk people into minimizing in favor of ethnicity is religion. And here, Germany is a really great example of this. Germany, also not a state or a country uh, until the Second half of the 19th century, here it's 1871. And in this case, nationalists had to convince people in Prussia and Bavaria uh, that they were all the same people, that they were the same nation, the same ethnic group, because they spoke the same language and had similar clothing and similar cuisine, even though they had different religions. And those different religions were something that their great grandparents had tried to kill each other over, uh, like real seriously tried to kill each other over. But nationalists are telling people in Bavaria and in Prussia and elsewhere in what is today Germany that those differences should be set aside because they don't mean as much as the national identity does. And this this belief in nationalism was everywhere in the 19th century, all over the world. But everywhere that people were buying into this and trying to get others to do that too, it always faced problems and and we can still ask ourselves today whether the United States is a nation right uh, the question is are we a single unified state with a single shared identity or are we a, a federation of 50 independent states with a plurality of identities we still have anxiety about this today and of course the American Civil War in the 1860s right during this nationalist moment uh, was very much about this question. The southern states that seceded and formed the Confederate States of America believed that the U.S. was a federation and that they could opt out of it. But the states that remained, the states that stayed in the Union, the states that we think of as being the North, disagreed with that idea. They did not think it was a confederation or a federation, an alliance that you could opt out of. They thought it was a nation that was permanent. And We fought a war about this. And we can even see the move to form the Confederate States of America as a nationalist move. Elites in the South saw themselves as part of a different culture, as a distinct ethnic group from elites in the North. And this was largely wrapped up in the morality of slavery. But there were other cultural elements to it as well. And because these people, these elites in the South, felt like they had a distinct culture, they wanted to exercise their right to national self-determination, that third component of nationalism. And we fought this extremely bloody war about it. And all of this, the, the US Civil War in particular, is part of the context of the story that Chambers is telling here. Many of the people who bought this book in 1895 would have been veterans of the Civil War, or part of the younger generation who lost fathers in that war. So this would have informed their reading of this speculative
1: world that Chambers builds. I think that is crucial context to understanding what is happening in this second page of exposition of world building that Chambers is doing in this story, where we begin to see The formation of an American identity of an American nation that is rooted in negativities instead of positivities. That means it's what I mean to say is it's a it's a negative identity based on who is not an American rather than who is one.
0: This whole period of the 1860s and the 1870s when nationalist wars are being fought in Europe and in the US, this is really the moment when the idea of nationalism itself won out over these other types of identities. Most people by this point now are convinced that having a national identity is something everyone has to have and is their most important identity. But once that issue is mostly settled, then comes the question of defining what each nation or what each ethnic group is, right? Who is who's in the nation and who isn't in the nation and what are the criteria for deciding that and, and here's where we can we can finally return to the, the text of the speculative world that Chambers has constructed here because the world that he's built is one that has answered this question and he's done it in a way that I think I guess I should say I hope <laughs> is unsettling to us here in 2018 uh, and there are three passages that I want to look at and explicate and uh, I'll just start with the the first one and see what you make of it here Brandon and the, The passage is this. We had profited well by the exclusion of foreign-born Jews as a measure of national self-preservation, while the settlement of the new independent Negro state of Suwanee, the checking of immigration, and the new laws concerning naturalization had contributed to national calm and prosperity. So, Brandon, I'm just going to kick that one to you to kind of break down for us what each of these components are here, because there's a lot of legal moves that the government is making that the Chambers gives us in basically one sentence.
1: What we're really looking at here is the groups that cause the most anxiety about the question of what America's national identity is. Just a few years after the story is written, we have W.E.B. Du Bois' phenomenal book, The Souls of Black Folk, which is trying to answer the question of who Black people are in the national identity of America. It's a wonderful book, and he has some great answers about that, saying that the, you know, Black people might be the most American, the most representative of American culture in terms of their experience of what America is, gives them special insight into what America could be. It's really a a wonderful book. I know we've talked a little bit about it uh, before on this podcast. I can't recommend that book enough. The Exclusion of Foreign-Born Jews. Anti-Semitism is pretty much a problem everywhere in the Western world until after World War II. But this kind of casual anti-Semitism was present everywhere. This in France, you have the Dreyfus affair in the late 19th century, which dominated uh, all the news and gossip and parlor room talk that we now associate with, you know, punditry on national media channels. And this was a question about whether or not this Jewish officer was a traitor to the French military, which he was not. But the fact that he was a Jew was a mark against him in this trial right it
0: meant that he wasn't properly French and this is and this is this tension between whether your religion or your ethnic identities are going to be paramount this is anxiety that people didn't have at the beginning of nationalism but here at the late stage of it really going into a second wave of of it that is going to lead directly to the Second World War, the Holocaust, uh, and other genocidal ethnic cleansing pogroms of those decades by Japan, the Soviet Union, and elsewhere around the world are the result of all of this. And the Dreyfus affair, as you say, is really one of the starts of that anti-Semitism is how this starts. You speak French, you have a French name, you love escargot and crepes and red wine, but somehow there's still something about you that's not quite French enough. So now we're
1: suspicious of your loyalties. And so what the US has decided here is to exclude foreign-born Jews. But this is really caught up in the in the bigger question of immigration, of who can be an immigrant and or a natural citizen, be naturalized as a citizen of the United States. It's important to note here that Chambers does call out the Jewish population, though. As, a part, as opposed to other forms of immigration and foreign-born white people is really what he's talking about here. And as we've said, these were hot political topics of the day. So
0: although Chambers is vague here when he says, well, immigration was checked and there were new laws concerning naturalization, he's not spelling out who's restricted and who's not, who's allowed to come here, who's allowed to come here and become a citizen. But we know that at this time, when you're thinking of foreign born Jews, what who you are thinking of is people coming from Central and Eastern Europe. So they're being excluded. And I think that we can also read here uh, in the check on immigration as being that it's okay if you're an an Anglo, if you are an English speaking person from somewhere in the United Kingdom, which at this point would also include Ireland, uh, or perhaps you're coming from Australia, or maybe even South Africa. uh, That's fine. We'll welcome you with open arms. But we see in this story that there are slights on French people, there are slights on uh, Italian people, Germans are made fun of. So even if you're a European, even if you're another type of white person, we might say, you're still going to be restricted, if not fully excluded here, because the nation, the idea of the American nation is as an Anglo nation. And we see that in the story when all of the officials of the government have the most Anglo names you can possibly have.
1: We also see the settlement of the new independent Negro state of Swanee. I think in 1895, this might not have been the worst suggestion in the history of all time to solve a lot of anxieties about what to do with all of these slaves and second generation descendants of slaves who are now asserting themselves to have rights as US citizens. This is a Problem that doesn't get solved until really like the 1980s. If you really want to, and it's still not completely solved, as we said, these you know the the prison industrial complex that is overwhelmingly weighted towards arresting young, young black men. But if you're looking at the the point when we're no longer drawing red lines on maps and defining neighborhoods where black people can live and things like that, said 1980s. Problem where all this kind of comes to an end, at least in terms of the legality of redlining, of segregation, you know, civil rights is still caught up in this. In 1895, there was a question of do we just give all these black people their own land and let them determine themselves as their own nation? Or are they really a part of what it means to be an American?
0: the historical comparison for this would be the, the creation of Israel uh, in the aftermath of the holocaust which is this which grows out of this notion that Jewish people need their own state so that they can protect themselves from having something like that happen again. This idea of creating a state for African Americans, and and really when I say state in this sense, I mean a country, an independent country for African Americans, was something that was a political issue, a political topic, something that was considered here in the late 19th century, because at this point in 1895, if you're an African American, you are either a former slave, or you are the child of of a former slave, that the people who comprise your group identity have been victimized because they didn't have the power of national self determination and might need it in order to protect themselves from having that happen again, is one way of looking at it. But of course, the other way of looking at it as well is the idea that African Americans, these former slaves, and the children of former slaves aren't properly. American because of either the perhaps the color of their skin or simply because of the legacy of having been property, that they, there's, they're not going to be able to properly be democratic or, and properly embrace Republican values. They also have their own denominations of Christianity and different cultural practices. They have their own dialects of English. And when we are looking for national uniformity here, that's an element of strangeness that needs to be given its own nation to go live in. And here, just to be clear, this is territory land within the United States that is being carved out and is being given to African Americans. Uh, Chambers doesn't say so, but presumably if there are any non-African Americans living in that territory, they have to move. This is not a unique program that's happening in the world in the 1890s or in the early 20th century, such as the creation of Israel, for example. But also we should keep in mind that following the First World War with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, there was a move to say, all people who are ethnically Greek should live in Greece, and ethnically Turkish people should live in the new state of Turkey. And this meant millions of people had to pick up, leave their homes, their ancestral homes, and move someplace else so that another person, another family could move in. Uh, and they would wave at each other, kind of on their way to, to relocating to each other's farms. Uh, this forced migration in order to create political boundaries for national groups or, or ethnic groups or cultural groups was something people were doing in this world.
1: We also tend to look at the African American experience, the slave story of immigration wildly differently than we do of white people immigrating to the United States. The story of most white people immigrating to the United States is that they loved America. They longed for a better life. They were under the impression of a lesser you know white government like Ireland was awful and the irish were despised by all of europe and they came to america and found a new community here and the italians are kind of the same way these these kind of ethnic white identities stories about escaping oppression and finding a, a new world in america a new hope the american dream was something they could aspire to that is the typical immigrant story for white people but when we we're looking at the narratives of African-American people, when we talk about them now, even in this country, is that they never really wanted to come here in the first place. And their presence here is still a question. And that is then how they were talked about. And it's still the case now when we're looking at immigrant stories. We discount the immigration experience because it was forced and they were sold of uh, black heritage in this country.
0: Just to be clear, when, when you say never really wanted to come to this country, what you mean is that they were kidnapped and brought to this continent against their will in order to do slave labor and to be beaten and sexually assaulted and dehumanized. And yeah, there might be some concern that even though we've all morally recognized that we're not going to do that to people anymore, the people who were doing that are still there, and the people who are now freed and being brought into the political franchise might have some justifiably strong feelings about that, and that could cause some political anxiety as well. All right, well, let's get to the the next passage I want to look at where religion is really at at the heart of it. Uh, Chambers writes, after the colossal Congress of Religions, bigotry and intolerance were laid in their graves, and kindness and charity began to draw warring sects together, and many thought the millennium had arrived. So this is another kind of vague bit of world building that Chambers is doing here. And Brandon, I'm curious about what you envision has specifically happened at the Congress of Religions. What religions are represented here? Who's doing the representation? And in what way are bigotry and intolerance being laid in their graves? How do you think this actually Functions.
1: Right. So this must have happened after the United States has been completely segregated and a national identity has been established. That the last thing to overcome, I have to imagine that this is can only be referring to these different sects of Christianity, maybe uh, some broadly Jewish rabbis or something were invited. But Chambers must be saying something here like that these theological skirmishes that result in disenfranchisement or new political movements or um, even wars in some cases, though I don't think the 1890s saw too many uh, Christian sects battling one another. He's saying that now that these things have been put aside, the Millennium has arrived, and this is this is a theological reference to an eschatology where, after this tribulation, there will be peace on earth for a thousand years before Christ returns, and then like some troubles will begin again, and then Christ will return, and that will be the end of time basically we'll all live with God in the in the new uh kingdom so this is basically taking what is a brand new eschatology at the time uh something that I think came from John Darby in like the 19, 1870s. So this is still like kind of a really new approach to Christianity and the Christianity as an apocalyptic religion, and seeing that this eschatology of the rapture and the tribulation and the millennium is now taking place, and this is the time, this is the period of time where people live in peace with one another, and. How the millennium happens in Chambers' reading of this is that we get rid of all of these d- different identities and different beliefs so that the root, the real, the kernel of Christianity can survive and grow rather than the husk, so to speak. So, do you, do
0: you think that this Congress of Religions includes the native born Jews who've not been kicked out of the United States? Or is it just Protestants and Catholics? Is it just different denominations of Christianity that are setting aside their differences here and other religions, Judaism, Islam, don't even register
1: in this world? I really think this is just Christian sex because we see a country where we have these two pages of exposition. All of these problems have been solved. And the final problem to be solved is letting people kill themselves because. Of this great country. There's real dissonance here between this picture we're being painted of this great America and the need for suicide clinics, which can only speak to a massive group of disenfranchised people.
0: Yeah, I think that's right, too. And really, the emphasis here, the point here is just that uh, that Chambers is showing us that the nationalist project is complete, because even people who really care about the religion have set aside those religious differences, because we are all part of the same nation. And that's really what matters. Well, let's move into this final passage I want to look at. And, and here, I'll just read it again. When the government solved the Indian problem and squadrons of Indian cavalry scouts in native costume were substituted for the pitiable organizations tacked down to the tail of skeletonized regiments by a former secretary of war, the nation drew a long sigh of relief when Chambers wrote this story, the Indian Wars of the American West were still a, a real big deal. They were something that cost a lot of resources and something that caused a lot, of, a lot of anxiety to people who lived in the West or who simply depended on the ability to safely transport goods or people from one coast to the other. And this, this notion, this idea of how those wars might come to an end is interesting. Uh, it really kind of shocked me, actually, and it seemed maybe even incongruous with some of the other nationalist elements of this world that Chambers is building. So I'm curious, Brandon, what you made of this uh, notion that the the Indian groups or the, the Native American groups of the uh, American West would surrender and become kind of a, a constituent part of the American army rather than to be given their own national self-determination
1: on reservations, which is ultimately how this is resolved. I was also surprised by reading about this solution to the Indian problem, so to speak. I think what Chambers is envisioning here is the fact that the Native Americans, the Indians, as he calls them, do have an actual legitimate claim to the land, to being American in some sense, that they're group identity, their own sense of being a nation or multiple nations, as we recognize them to be, had been usurped by the national identity of being an American. And so they could either assimilate or be defeated in war, so to speak, because they're the only other group that has an actual claim to the land. So those are really the only two options, I think, that Chambers is thinking through. You can assimilate these people into Your culture somehow, and recognize their contribution to your culture, even if it's just as being good at war, or you have to defeat them entirely because they do threaten your claim to the land. And if they get people on their side, you can't take their land. And this is maybe even mirrored in Hildred's anxiety about Louis. And Louis having a legitimate claim to this throne in his power fantasy, but Hildred knows it's really his, and understanding the threat, there's only two ways to solve that threat, exile or murder, or the total renunciation of your, the claim itself. Yeah for me where this
0: made me shrug my shoulders or, or really even just kind of wonder i guess it's because this stood out in stark contrast to what happens with the african american population who are not given this option to assimilate or even just to to all 10 million of them join the the army in some in some way they have to be exiled and given their own independent state to live in. But that's not what happens here with the Native American groups. And that seemed incongruous to me. But I, I expect that for someone reading this in the 1890s, that would not have seemed incongruous, that that the, the Native Americans maybe even seemed almost more like an enemy army than like a, a unified Nation in itself, and that there were fewer of them in 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 smaller groups who could be appropriated this way and put to use fighting Germans in the Samoan Islands. So I want to I want to sew up the the world building here, and then I want to talk about why why does Chambers build this world? But to sew it up, I just want to really make clear. I want to bring in together all of these elements that we've been dissecting for quite a while now to make it clear that Chambers is envisioning a near future america that has been ethnically cleansed that is not a diverse place in which every inhabitant is a, a white english speaking person and that even religious differences have been have been set aside uh, that really this is kind of the america of the kkk's dreams that chambers has invented here it makes me uncomfortable to read this and to really internalize what Chambers is doing here. There is also here this element of what comes to be called fascism, though that's a, a troublesome label in contemporary politics. It's really also a troublesome label for historians to use as well, but a hyper militant nationalism that is calling that is calling for not just uh, cultural unity, but, an also, but also a shared biological unity heritage, and that this is solved by dealing with Native Americans in this way, by making them a class of soldiers, and by getting rid of the population of of African Americans as well. This is happening here in a fictional story in the 1890s, but we are mere decades from real people in the real world doing exactly this in their country and this is something that Americans were calling for in the 1890s as well. So with all of that in mind, the real question, the real discussion point here is why does Chambers set up this world this way? Does Chambers endorse these positions? Is, is this the America that Chambers wants to live in? Is this an optimistic near future that he's envisioning? Or is it the other way around? Is, there, is this sarcasm? Is this a dystopia? that he's writing about here. What was your take on this, Brandon? I think this is hard for us to get at, not living in that world, being emotionally distanced from this, Uh, but what was your sense of it?
1: Until I got to the action of the story, I was really dismayed by the opening passages of this story because I didn't know what type of world Chambers was creating. I didn't know what kind of story I was reading. Very shortly after this, all of these great improvements happened. "Quote unquote" great improvements, and there are some great improvements in here. Replacing bad architecture with good architecture—that is something I would absolutely love. That is a world I want to live in. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of problems here that go along with the uh, improvements to infrastructure and architecture in in the nation. Ethnic cleansing is a real problem in my mind. But when you get this world, and the final thing that is after this long, arduous legal process that people have also been fighting for for years, which is legal suicide, government-assisted suicide. You're talking about a place that now endorses and celebrates the form of hatred that causes people to destroy themselves. And I think that that is something that Chambers has in mind here, that this is not an endorsement, but that the inclusion of the final piece of this, two paragraphs after we get all of these changes is there to emphasize the fact that this is a dystopia. This is a terrible place to live. This is not a country that anybody should want to live in. That you're living in a country where the wealthy and the elite are celebrating the notion that the poor and destitute and outcast can kill themselves and no longer and unburden themselves from the problem of being a part of a community that a community can solve its problems with undesirables by making those undesirables no longer want to live and that is a really really dark form of hatred it's not just wishing that those people didn't exist it's getting them to wish themselves out of existence and i think that that is the the kind of dark world that chambers is living in and that this is something that is a toll that people carry around as this book about The King in Yellow becomes this kind of almost alternate world, that the world is already under the thrall of this evil king, and that it just needs to be brought out into the light so that everybody can recognize the truth. And that is kind of the horror element of the play The King in Yellow. And the truths it reveals is the reality of what all of this really serves, which is the pallid mask, the pure evil, the darkness of it all, the the planet where stars shine black. So I think that that's my reading on the story, though. I've struggled with this for a few days. I'm not so sure either, though I really love this
0: exercise. I mean, this is essentially what my day job is. And in fact, I explicitly didn't go do any research on Chambers's life, beliefs he might have, It's possible that we have all sorts of other evidence from Chambers. He wrote a lot. He's a prolific writer. We might have letter collections. We might know a lot about his politics in other texts that I haven't read. But for me, I thought it was fun to do what I have to do as an early medieval or late antique historian, which is to say, this is the only text I have. How can I understand it? And to do this mental exercise of it. My sense of this was that Chambers does not endorse these positions at all, that this is not a world that Chambers wants to live in, that it's a joke that he, and he's making jokes about it throughout, a lot of puns, things that didn't strike us as necessarily funny, but probably would have seemed funny to a contemporary audience. But where I really see that happening, right, is, is that this is a story that is at its core about madness, and that Chambers is showing us this this world in which nativist nationalism in the United States has won. And it, it might win for Chambers here in the 1890s. That This is a world that could come to be. He is say, He is predicting that it has, or envisioning that it has, catapulting forward 25 years and seeing what is the world that those people will construct. And he's showing us this New York that has beautiful architecture, which yes, I also would like to have, that has great Parks and has gotten rid of all of those awful French coffee shops that I guess people hate to go to for some strange reason. All of that's happening on the surface of this world that Chambers is inventing. But the story itself is about how that world is rotten, how this is a world of madness and murder and suicide. In fact, it's a world in which so many people want to commit suicide that the government has to set up places where they can do that so that their corpses can be easily disposed of without creating uh, some other kind of public service problem. So this is not a happy place that Chambers is envisioning. And Chambers is predicting that if nativist nationalist policies carry the day here in the 1890s, we're going to have a world in which mental health problems Abound. It's that is a world that is going to go insane. That's my sense of it.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think even another level at which he's showing us the the rot of the world, so to speak, is with the pun with the with the name Calvados, which you know, as you mentioned, is this apple brandy. And then when we see Hildred serving brandy, it is putrid. It's rotten, and he should have. Better brandy, particularly if he's descended from this uh, yeah, from right. this place that makes great apple brandy, that this is a place where it's it's just rotten. And I really do want to emphasize here that the truth revealed in this play, The King in Yellow, is a truth meant to reveal the real workings of this society. We have this great speech from the governor of New York about how suicide is good for everybody. And the fact that we have suicide facilities doesn't actually make the number of uh, suicides go up and how people can just come here and do this. And it's so much better. It's better for communities. But like, why does that need to exist in an already great America, so to speak, that this is a great America, and yet we have uh, these policies, these institutions that still need to find a way to propagandize and cover for all the darkness and rot underneath the shining white city you know i think there's no there's no mistake here about chicago modeling itself after the city they built for the world fair which was not a real city as a
0: native Chicagoan who has spent a lot of time enjoying the the skyscrapers of this period in which Chambers is living, I was appalled at the suggestion that the city needed to burn uh, and should look entirely like the Museum of Science and Industry, which is the one building in Chicago that's left over from that World's Fair, though that is a beautiful building, great museum, you should check it out. Before we get out of here, I think we should express some concern about our own reading of this story. I have anxiety about whether or not we got it right. It might be that Chambers really does believe that this would, in fact, be a great world, that these were his politics. And I would be real interested to either learn that that's explicit in some other text, some letter collection or something like that, or just that other people read the story that way. But I think on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman,
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: And make sure you do check us out on Patreon. We'd love to have you participate in our story selection process from here on out. And there's already so much extra content on there that we think you'll love.
1: Join us next time, where we'll be reading Casanetto's Last Song by Robert E. Howard. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.